I take my title from Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, in the last part of the verse. Where is the God of judgment? Malachi lived about 100 years post-exile. The temple had long been built with the wall. Sacrifices had been restored. And the people were waiting for the messenger of the covenant, the Messiah. They were expecting him. They were longing for him. They expected him to come with great power and to establish Israel as a great power and restore prosperity and peace to Israel and rule and reign on the earth. But that wasn't happening. And in fact, the post-exile people were just as bad as the pre-exile people. There was corruption politically, there was corruption religiously, and there was corruption socially. And Malachi brings this prophecy to the people of God to confront and expose their sin as they pose this question, where is the God of judgment? Now God is going to present six disputes in the form of statements to expose and confront Israel's sin. He will make a statement six times. Israel will respond with objection and then God will answer the objection as in our text. You have wearied the Lord with your words. That's the dispute that God has with His people designed to unpack their sin. The word weary means to be tired. It's a present perfect tense, which means something that's happened in the past that just keeps going on and on. In our modern language, we would say, I'm tired of your endless complaining. I've had it. I won't put up with it anymore. Now be sure God never gets weary. He's speaking in what's called anthropomorphisms to express his attitude. The independent God is never weary of anything. But his attitude towards his people is that of weariness. He's had it with Israel's constant complaining. And then Israel says, wherein have we wearied you? And here's the answer of God. Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? Perhaps you've had those same thoughts. Will judgment ever take place? Now, to tell you something about their thinking, one is that if they're looking at the world and saying, evil is as if it's good to God, that is God's side, his opinion of evil is that it must be good. Why? Because the wicked are prospering. The wicked are doing well. Now that statement presupposes that Israel thinks they are the good guys. Right? If you would come in judgment for the good guys, then we would get our reward of prosperity, and the Messiah would come and set up His kingdom, and we could live in peace. Where is the God of judgment? Reminds me of a book written by a Jewish rabbi that I heard in person one time at a conference, who wrote a book that is entitled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. The whole premise of his book is faulty because there's no such thing as a good person according to Scripture. And so Israel thinks, we're the good guys, you must like the bad guys because they're prospering and we're not. Where is the God of judgment? I have to bite my own tongue occasionally and those words have slipped out. Maybe not exactly like that. Maybe you've said in our current day of political corruption and societal corruption, you've said, nothing's ever going to happen. It's just going to keep going as it always is. What am I saying? Where is the God of judgment? Beloved, judgment is going to come in a way that no court, 
no Supreme Court could ever do because God is going to judge the actions and the heart and He'll make everything right. right. Now the Lord, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, is going to give three sections to one answer. Here's God's response to the constant complaining of Israel saying, where is the God of judgment? With three sections. Number one, the Lord will send His messenger. That's in verse 1 of chapter uh, 3. Next, the Lord will send judgment to purify. And then the last one, the Lord is going to send judgment to consume people. That's the Lord's answer to Malachi. And beloved, that's God's answer to you today. Where is the God of judgment? So let's look in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So God's first part of the answer is, where is the God of judgment? I'm coming and I'm sending my messenger. Note a few observations here. One, it's the messenger they want. You're seeking him, so you say. This is the messenger you delight in. Maybe you can perhaps put your feet in their shoes just a bit. Now, they've waited 100 years for the Messiah, and you've waited about two years for a new leader, haven't you? And you think, then judgment is coming. Then this corruption will be finished. Suppose... A messenger was sent from God that went to the White House press room, as the White House spokesman does, and says, the Lord is going to send a messenger. He's coming. And it's going to be the messenger. It's going to be the president you've wanted. One you would delight in, one you would seek, and one that you would hope would come. And you can imagine the expectation with those words. You might say, well, what do I need to do? Do I need to put up signs in yards? Do I need to knock on door to door, make phone calls? But notice, he shall come suddenly to his temple. Now the word sudden doesn't mean quickly, it means unexpectedly and surprisingly. It's like a surprise party. When you put your hand on the doorknob, you don't know what's about to happen on the other side of the door. You just think it's going to be a normal day at home. You come home and there's dinner prepared, but you open the door and everybody shouts surprise and you had no idea, there was no expectation of what was about to happen. That's the messenger that's coming. Now we know that Malachi is reaffirming the prophecy of Isaiah 40 concerning John the Baptist. And John the Baptist in Luke 3 applies it to himself, which he is the forerunner, the harbinger to Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant. Like in this day, in what God says in this prophecy, the people in Jesus' day, when John the Baptist showed up, should have understood there's something unexpected coming with The Messiah. Something they could have never imagined. Something that would be a total and complete surprise. Because when John came, he came with a message preparing the way of the Lord. That's what our text says in chapter 3 verse 1. Now this is an expression, an allusion to monarchs who would send representatives, messengers ahead of the monarch to prepare the way, make a highway for our God, Isaiah 40. So if a valley needs to be lifted, it was. If a mountain made low, it was. The crooked place is straight and the rough place is plain. And the monarch could travel where he needed to go. 
Well, the prophecy concerning John the Baptist was not a highway road for the Messiah to travel, but it was a certain kind of heart that the Messiah would travel to. And this heart would be prepared in some way by the message of John the Baptist. And what did he say in Luke chapter 3? Now imagine, put yourself back in the illustration that God has sent a prophet. He says, the next president that's coming in two years is just the one you want and you seek and you delight in. So you say. And then the prophet says, here's the message of the Lord. Oh, you generation of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring therefore fruit worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For God is even to these stones able to raise up children to Abraham. Therefore every every tree that bringeth forth not fruit shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. Don't think we have Abraham to our father, because that's what they thought. In other words, when they heard that press conference, they said, good, the president is coming, and he's going to do away with these liberals. And John turns to the conservatives and says, you need to repent. You are a generation of vipers. That must have been quite a surprise. Quite a shock. Now, John is the harbinger, the forerunner for Christ, so he's preparing the hearts of the people to receive an unexpected Messiah that would come surprisingly to his temple. And what does he say? Repent. Repent. See, everyone is accountable to God. The Jews who thought they were the good old boys were not the good old boys. And they were resting in Abraham saying, we don't need to repent. Judgment could never come to us because Abraham is our father. And so he was naturally, but not spiritually. Maybe you said, well, surely going to church must count for something before God. Or I have read my Bible occasionally. I have been known to pray a few times. Beloved, the the only thing that causes you to escape judgment is your attachment by faith to Jesus Christ. The devil reads the Bible, and he's had a conversation with God himself. And the Jews who trusted in the temple, where Jeremiah chapter 7 says, Speak not lying words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. They looked at the buildings and said, We're safe. We have the temple. We have Abraham. And John says, You're vipers. You need to repent. That was shocking, but not as shocking As the Messiah himself. So John is a forerunner. He's kind of a surprising kind of guy. But then Jesus will suddenly, surprisingly, and unexpectedly come to his temple. Now this is the one they said they wanted. This is the one they said they delight in. What became apparent, it was not the one that they expected. Jesus spent most of his ministry in and around the temple, the colonnades. His parents brought him there as an infant to go through the ceremonial offering. He was there at 12 years of age asking questions of the doctors and lawyers. And then in his ministry, he spent much time there. To the point, his own testimony in Luke chapter 19 verse 47 is this. I taught you daily in the synagogues and in the temple. 
He was there often routinely. But how did he come in an unexpected way? Well, it must have been unexpected. He was going to cleanse the temple. He did that twice. That must have been a great shock that this person claiming to be the Messiah would actually cleanse the temple, the one they trusted in. It must have been a surprise later, as Jesus foretold them in Matthew 24, I'm going to destroy the temple, and he did so in 70 AD. That must have been a shock. But the greater surprise is who Jesus said he was when he taught them. See, they had constructed a replacement Messiah, a Messiah after their own image. A Messiah that, as far as they were concerned, looked like a Messiah, acted like a Messiah, and would be like a Messiah for them because he would do exactly what they wanted him to do. That's the kind of Messiah they sought. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted. And that's the kind of Messiah they delighted in, a replacement Messiah. And you and I have the same struggle, don't we? We want a Messiah that will come and pattern life the way we want it. We want Him to do what we want to do. And that's simply a God of the figment of our own imaginations. And sometimes we're shocked with what our Messiah does and who He says He is. What was so shocking? Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Now, the me, first person singular, is Yahweh, Jehovah, because the Lord of hosts, in the last part of verse 1, is speaking. Well, that's not the person that John the Baptist was a forerunner for. It was Jesus that John clearly was a harbinger for. But now, Jehovah says, John will prepare the way for me, because Jesus is Jehovah. Beloved, this is not some add-on to your theology that you can take or leave. Salvation is determined and assured by those who believe He's God and those who reject Him as God. It's a difference in heaven and hell, being saved and not saved. This is a fundamental position of the church. Jesus Himself said in John chapter 8, If you do not believe that I am, He is italicized, added by the translators. If you do not believe that I am that I am, you shall die in your sins. You are what? You are Jehovah, God. That was so shocking that when the high priest stood up in that terrible, terrible courtroom scene, their own court, and said, If you be Christ, the Son of God, just tell us plainly. He said, I am. They charged him with blasphemy, spat on his face, and crucified him. The point here of sending the messenger before judgment is that if God had listened to them and said, okay, you want the God of judgment? He would have wiped out the planet. Why did he wait? Because God was on a salvation salvation mission. Jesus didn't come to judge the world, John 3.17. I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Beloved, we come into the world condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And so God, in His great mercy, answers the question first. Where is the God of judgment? You can be thankful He's not coming. Because if He had, there would be no Messiah if He wiped out Israel. 
But he was long-suffering. He was gracious. He was merciful. Because the forerunner to Jesus would speak and Jesus would come and Jesus would give his life for his people. This reminds us, too, when we see God, it appears to be delaying in judgment. God is not delaying at all, is He? See? Second Peter chapter 3, the wicked were charging God with being slack. I mean, things have continued as they always have since the Noahic flood, and they just will continue. And God answers and says, God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now that second letter is written to the same people of the first letter, which is the elect of God of 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. God is not willing that any of His elect should perish, but that all of the elect would come to repentance and faith in Christ. And they will do so. They will do so. God is long-suffering. How long-suffering He was with Israel. Their corruption, their sin, even in confronting them... He was still faithful to His covenant. He sent the messenger of the covenant, so He delayed judgment because Christ came to say, Beloved, today, God is still on that salvific mission, isn't He? And He's using His church to display the wonders of His grace through speaking His gospel and speaking His truth to a lost world. So God's first answer is, Anytime we ask for justice, we shouldn't ask for just justice, but just mercy. A kind of mercy that is truly just, because it's a mercy found only in Christ Jesus the Lord. But notice the question in verse 2 now. But who may abide the day of His coming, and who shall stand when He appeareth? Now Malachi shifts from the first coming of Jesus to His final coming. If the first coming was not coming to judgment, and verse 2 is clearly about judgment, when He comes to judge, when He appears, who shall stand? Who shall endure it? Final judgment. So God's answer is, the God of judgment is coming in a future day. He shall judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And he's given assurance to every man that he raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is to assurance to anybody that wants to look at the historical record that Christ is coming and he's going to judge the entire planet in righteousness. So from first coming to final appearing, who will stand is the question. Where is the God of judgment? He's coming. Who's going to stand? There's two groups of people in his answer. There is a group that will stand and endure the final judgment. Why? Because judgment will be for their purification. But there's another group that will not stand in the final judgment. Because judgment will come on them as a consuming fire. Psalm 1. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly will not stand in that day, but the righteous will endure it. 
So I want to go with the latter first and then spend most of our time on the former. The latter being the consuming fire. God's coming that way for the ungodly. And then we'll spend the rest of the time on refiner fire judgment. What is that about? How does that keep us so that we don't experience the final judgment like the ungodly? You can see this in verse 5 concerning the ungodly. And I will come near to you to judgment. Here's the answer. I am coming in a future day to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against adulterers and false wearers and against those that oppress the hireling in their wages, employers that oppress their employees and don't give them what their right pay is, the widow and the fatherless and those that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Now once again we see the root problem like we saw last week in Psalm 36. The problem is not the fruit hanging on the branch, is it? See, on these trees you've got all these sins hanging on the branch. The problem is the root. They don't fear God. As we saw in Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They flatter themselves... So that they can't discover their own guilt. Self-flattery. Is Israel not flattering themselves? We're ready for judgment. We're the good guys. Self-flattery. Fear. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Look at chapter 4 verse 1. For behold the day cometh that shall burn as an oven or a furnace. Which is an incinerator. And incinerator is where you put waste materials for one purpose, to reduce it to ash. The day's coming, saith the Lord, that day shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all those that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch or bough. You cut off a tree, cut off the bough, what happens? Sprouts will come up off the roots. There's life there. You uproot a tree and lay the axe to the roots. There's no chance of recovery. Zero. When God comes in judgment on the wicked, He will come as a consuming fire. And there will neither be root nor branch. But it will be a consuming fire forever. For the ungodly. Now that's part. Thank the Lord. That's some people. That's a judgment. As a consuming fire. Because your God is holy. And He is a consuming fire. And He's a God of strict. Unflinching justice. He will bring judgment. You can rest in it. But what we want to spend our time on now. Is the judgment that brings purification. That means you will stand. That's the point of Malachi's words here. So let's read verse 2 again. But who may abide the day of His coming, and who shall stand when He appeareth? Because, this is why they'll stand. Because He is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He shall purify the sons of Levi. Who is that? And purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, 
and as in the former years. So this group will endure and will stand by the grace of God. So how and why is the refiner's fire a means of their standing in the final judgment? Well, I'm going to separate the two metaphors and and treat them separately. First, a fuller soap. That's the first reason. Why, Malachi? Because God, Jesus, is going to be like fuller's soap. Maybe that'll stop. A fuller was like a laundromat, except it wasn't dry cleaning, it was wet cleaning. The soap was potash or sodium hydroxide, chemicals they would mix together for soap. And the fuller would take the garment and submerge it and then trample it under his feet. Serving much like your agitator or the fins in your washer that connect with the garments and rub them together and produce the agitation. Now the glorious news of escaping the final judgment is not that you get trampled. Jesus was like a garment trampled under the wrath of God on your behalf. Why will you endure the final judgment? Because He's like Fuller's soap. So first of all, He became sin which knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. That means you have a positional righteousness with God. And you know that by faith. That can never change. You can't get more right with God. You can't get less right with God. Positionally, you're justified because of the fuller or the the soap of Christ's blood has washed you and made you whole. I love this song that's sung that poses this question. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your garments are totally clean. They are spotless. There is not a stain of sin on your garments. As Paul would say to the church at Corinth, a church with many, many stains, such were some of you. But you were washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now that's positional. That means there's no activity. There's nothing to be done. We just receive the righteousness of God in Christ by faith. We see it. We love it. and We embrace it. No work. But notice here, God is speaking of some activity. Because He says, The refiner's fire to purify you is so that you may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, and that offering will be pleasant to the Lord. So as the Bible so often does, it moves from a positional righteousness to a practical righteousness. And the one proves the other. Where there's no practical righteousness, the Bible calls into question your positional righteousness. How is the refiner's fire necessary for practical righteousness? 
And how is that somehow the assurance that we escape the final judgment? So those are the questions we want to try to deal with with the rest of our time. First of all, the sons of Levi, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, that's who you are. You are the holy priesthood, according to 1 Peter 2.5 and 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. So you say, well, I don't know how this applies to me. Very much so. You are the Levitical spiritual priesthood. They're gone. You're here to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable. Sacrifices that are right, righteous, and that please God. So the question we're posing is, what kind is that? What makes it pure to God? What makes it right to God? And what makes it a pleasure to God? Okay, so we go back to chapter 1 to see this. God has already dealt briefly with this issue in chapter 1, verse 11. That's where I'll read from. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. So this is the answer to the second dispute God has with Israel. The first one is in verse 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord. We don't think you've loved us. And then the second dispute comes in verses 6 and 7. So verse 11 is part of this dispute. So here's what the Lord says in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place shall be offered unto my name incense and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord. A pure offering is the same as the pure offering that will please God and will be done in a right way. Now, the first thing you need to understand about verse 11 is that this prophecy is concerning you. You are the Gentiles for which Malachi is prophesying to, and he's prophesying about the church of Jesus Christ today, and you are a believer, you're the Levitical priesthood spiritually, therefore, this verse is all about you. So you should be highly interested in this, not as an Old Testament story, but as a story that has relevance, a text where God is saying, in heritage and in churches on the planet, my name will be great. Now what that doesn't mean is that somehow you're going to enhance the greatness of God. You can't do that. You will not increase God's greatness. You will not add to God's greatness. But what He means is, through heritage, God's name will be put on display. As great. The word great means important, significant, worthy, or of high value. You know when you place importance on something? It has great value. So just to be sure we're on the same page. God is saying, any church on the planet today, and in heritage today, so we're applying it. My name shall be regarded as highly valuable through the people of heritage. That's highly relevant, isn't it? So what you're asking me now is saying, how? Through a certain kind of heart that sees Jesus in a certain kind of way. That's the positional purity by faith that leads us to a practical purity because we see the God of glory as great and significant and worthy. He's worth it. So to understand 
what God is saying here. We have to ask, what is an impure offering? Verse 8. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? That's impure. And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Rhetorical answer is, no, he will not. If they tried to pay their taxes with a blind, a sick, a diseased animal, the governor would reject it. I mean, that's even true on human terms. How much more? With the God of glory. Now what does God care if it's a blind animal? He doesn't eat these things. Psalm 50. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, he said. Does it really matter? Well, God had told them first of all, what kind of animal to offer. And secondly, the impure offering reflected a certain kind of heart. That thought, what about God? He's not so great. Is he? I mean, really, he's not. Just bring your diseased animals and, hey. I mean, that gets kind of costly, bringing these high-quality guys up here and sacrificing. Bring him the bad stuff. Now, what were they doing with the good stuff? Well, they were selling them for a high price at the market. The words that God uses to express the impure offering is despise, polluted, contemptible, and weary. Do you know what the single word that runs through every one of those definitions? Unworthy, no value, insignificant, unimportant to me. When the God of glory becomes unimportant in your heart, it's because something else has captured your heart. And has become highly significant and great. You say, but we don't even offer animals. You're the living sacrifice. Romans 12, 2. Is your sacrifice to God on Sunday sometimes blind of His glory? Just blind to it? Is it sometimes spiritually sick because your heart is just bored with the whole thing? And is your sacrifice lame? That's kind of an idiom. You know, lame for the body means you got a limp, but lame for the soul means I'm just uninterested in God. I wonder if God would be saying to us this morning what he said to them in verse 10 I have no pleasure in you. None. Why not? Because you have no pleasure in God. Right? He's second rate. He's mediocre. He's trifling. He's boring. So God says to you in 2022, My name will be great among heritage because they will see and know the value of my name and they will act accordingly in worship. It won't be everything that will keep them from worship. Just just any significant thing. Because I will be more significant to them than I was to Israel. You see what God is saying. So the only way to have a pure offering from a positional righteousness. Remember that's done. You're saved and that's never going away. 
But the practical righteousness ebbs and flows and sometimes is not there in worship. Why? Because something has captured our hearts rather than the significance of God by faith so that God is treasured. We have a replacement Messiah. Something comes in and sweeps us off our feet. Feet. Now, Peter is going to echo the same words, different words, same idea in 1 Peter 2.5, where again, he draws attention to the fact that we are the Levitical priesthood spiritually. We're not really Levites, but we're the holy priesthood. So he says in verse 5, You also as lively stones, living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, for what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now that's exactly what our text says in Malachi. The sons of Levi, he will purify and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, and it will be acceptable to God. So Peter, what makes the sacrifice acceptable to God? Spiritual sacrifices as living sacrifices. First, it's by Jesus Christ. It's faith in Him. That's always first. But what else? What makes the building we're doing, what makes the worship we're trying to do acceptable to God? Verse 4. To whom coming unto a living stone, Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You're offering holy priesthood sacrifices. You see Peter's connection. When we're coming to Christ as significant and as great, because He is the Jehovah of Malachi 1.11, His name shall be great among the Gentiles, because the Gentiles that trust in Him will see Him as precious, valuable. And they will say like Peter, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We don't want to be anywhere on the planet than worshiping you. Then what happens? The house gets starting to be built. And the sacrifices come. And God says, I have pleasure in you. Why, Lord? Because you have pleasure in my son. Okay, knowing that we are the sinners we are, we're knowing that we we don't conform to this all the time, do we? What is God's solution to Malachi in Malachi 1.9? Here it is. And now I pray you, beseech God that He will be gracious unto us. The word gracious literally means show pity, Lord. O Lord, forgive Now, I'm adding the songwriter's words. It means, show pity, Lord. But the songwriter added, Lord, forgive. Let a repenting rebel live. Are not your mercies large and free? Yes, they are. Cannot a sinner trust in thee? Yes, you can. And so God is calling us, beloved, right here, right now, to repent. And He'll be gracious unto us. Turn, because Jesus died for us. So God is drawing us back in. Not to the consuming fire judgment, but the refiner's fire judgment that's designed to draw us, not push us away. The same blood that saved us is the blood we trust in in order to work righteousness 
in order to be pleasing to God, in order to offer spiritual sacrifices, they must be with a high value of God. And the word for that in the Bible is faith. Faith is a seeing, a treasuring, a knowing, a loving Christ. And so, that's the message of Malachi. Now you may say, how is it that repentance has value to God? I mean, where's the, where's the joy in that? Where's, why would that please God? We're broken and, and we're, we're contrite. How is it that then God says, then shall He be pleased? When you're broken, because that's what repentance is. We're acknowledging our sin before God. David, I think, in Psalm 51, his penitential psalm, connects these two ideas of purity. And at the end of the psalm, he would say, Then shall the sacrifices of righteousness be acceptable to God. Then, just like Malachi says. When, David, when the Lord builds Zion, he'll be pleased with the sacrifices. Or, as David says, when we come to God in a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart, God will not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure. Build the walls of Zion. Then shall God be pleased with the sacrifices of Malachi chapter 3. Practical. Or the one David is referring to. Now notice how David connects purity with brokenness. He gives three parallelisms. Which are statements where he makes a statement and repeats it with different words, but it's the same idea. And here are three. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Same idea, different words. If God creates a new heart in David after his sin with Bathsheba, what would he do? He will renew a right relationship with God. Here's the next parallelism. Cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Same idea. If God creates in David a a new heart, a pure heart, and that's what we're referring to in Malachi, it's out of a pure heart that we offer sacrifices. If he renews a right relationship, what will he do? He will not cast David out of his presence nor take his Holy Spirit away, but he will come to David and be close to him. That's what we expect out of a relationship, isn't it? In every relationship you have, there's some degree of closeness marriage, family. Church, friends, differing degrees, but all expressed relationship means face-to-face. There's a closeness. Now, if David, or God creates a new heart in David, a pure heart, and he renews a right relationship so that God is not departing from David, and the Holy Spirit's not taken away, but he's coming close to David, what would that mean? Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with your free spirit. Then... Shall he be pleased with your sacrifices? Then shall he build Jerusalem. Because your joy has been restored in the greatness and the significance and the worth of Jesus Christ. And David is broken. What's he so broken about? Lord, I am astounded That I sought out to enjoy the pleasures of sin just for a season. And I'm broken. That I belittled your glory and I despised your name. God even told David and Samuel through the uh, prophet Nathan. You've despised my name. What did he tell the people of Malachi's day? You've despised my name. 
you valued a woman over the eternal God. I didn't say there's no value there. But David saw that as superior to God. And he's broken. And God is not despising his brokenness. God has pleasure in David's brokenness because God is restoring the joy of salvation and God is making his name great once again in David's life. So repentance, brokenness is not despised by God. And there's a sweet sorrow there because we're, we're broken over the fact that we enjoyed the pleasure of sin. And so... The, the acts of righteousness are not earning salvation so that we could say at the end, the reason I'm going to escape is because I've done so many right things. Positionally, we're pure. And practically, that flows out of that position, we see God is great. We see God is sufficient. We see His grace is all providing. And out of that relationship, we experience the greatness of God, the God of joy. Then God's pleased with it. Right now, in our, our final time, how does the refiner's fire then preserve us so that we escape the final judgment? Surely the, the offerings don't do it. And they don't. But they demonstrate something. So notice the messenger will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Silver is put in the crucible. And the refiner sits right over the crucible. He won't leave it. He's not casual. He's not flippant. He sits over the crucible with love and attention. As the molten material, the, the ore is put in the crucible in a liquid form because the crucible is necessary because the gold and silver is resistant to heat. So it requires high measures and amounts of heat. And the refiner sits over it in a protective, in a, in a loving way. <clears throat> now it's been said, maybe you've read, that when the refiner finally sees the reflection of himself, he knows it's been hot enough, it's been long enough, and the dross has been consumed. <clears throat> but I would add to that this, and this is the purpose of the refiner. If the refiner sees his image in the gold, and you're the gold, the gold of faith, what do you see? You see the image of the refiner. And that is the aim of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus said, why? For they shall see God. And the refiner is going to do whatever it takes in your life so that you see Him. And you keep seeing Him. Now what's the Bible word for keep seeing Him? That's faith. And how is God keeping you? You're being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time of final judgment. You will not perish because the refiner is going to keep you in faith and he'll never let you go. He'll keep you trusting. How does he do that? Fire. Fire. The whole imagery is designed to express suffering, pain, and affliction. The refiner is coming after you, but he's coming with love. It's not 
that his design is to harm you. It's not that he finds joy in afflicting you, but he will have you in the final day. And he's going to keep your faith. And Peter says the way he keeps faith is he puts you right into the fire so that you may keep seeing him. Because how often, beloved, do you turn your eyes away from Jesus? How often do we stray? How often do we turn to the idols of the heart just regularly? But the messenger of the covenant is committed to the covenant Which in Jeremiah 32 says what? I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Neither totally nor finally as our forefathers penned in the articles of faith. God goes on record. You will not totally, you will not finally depart by faith in me. Why? I put my fear in your heart and I will keep it there and stir it. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4. Where he says, For judgment must first begin at the house of God. That's verse 17 of chapter 4. What kind of judgment? Consuming fire? Refiner's fire. In God's providence, the first place he starts often when he judges a society, even temporally, he starts with you. So Peter's saying you need to prepare yourself for this reality. God loves you. The refiner's fire is coming. And his aim is to increase your sight of him. So that your faith, being more purged, would see him more as he is. So judgment must begin at the house of God. That's the church of the living God. And if it first begin with us, what shall the end be of those that obey not the gospel? Now note, those outside the church don't obey the gospel. Those in the covenant, they obey it. Why? Why? Seeing you purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit, 1 Peter 1.22. They've been positionally purified. That sticks. They're obedient to the gospel. They don't reject the gospel when they have pure eyes to see the gospel. It's gold. It's gold. Now, judgment, refiner's fire, only begins with you. And it's very short in this life only. But... What shall the end be of those who reject the gospel? Consuming fire. Right? You see, Peter's logic is clear. Then he says this. And if the righteous, those are those that have faith in Christ, they're pure. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Scarcely here in the Greek is not scantily, barely. The word means with difficulty. The righteous are being preserved by faith in Christ through difficulty. What is that, Peter? Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as some strange, surprising thing is happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you're a partaker of Christ's suffering. That is, when His glory is revealed, you shall be glad with exceeding joy. Now, what's the implication there? When His glory is revealed, your faith will be intact. You will not be destroyed. Why? The refiner's fire is keeping you. How does he keep you? How does he keep your faith? He puts you in the refiner's fire. Faith is resilient. Faith cannot be destroyed. Faith goes in the fire and true faith comes out. Maybe with a lot of wounds and a a lot lot of things, but it comes out. 
So the righteous are being preserved, they're being sanctified, is the word saved. They're, they're being sanctified through the difficulty, through the trials that are embodied in the, in the picture of fire. But the ungodly, where shall they appear? That's Malachi's question, isn't it? Who shall stand when he appears? Where shall the ungodly appear? Consuming fire. They hate the gospel, reject the gospel, no interest in the gospel, because they're not pure. They can't see God. They're blind to it. Now here's the conclusion of verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. Now the will of God here is not the will of command. It's His sovereign will. God determines the how, why, what, and when of your suffering. Who will suffer? He will decide that. How will they suffer? Sovereign will will determine that. How long and when will it be over? That is in the hand of the refiner. Did not the refiner determine when the gold needed to come out and the heat was to be lowered? So if you're suffering, you need to know, you need to know it is according to the sovereign decree of a holy God that providentially has brought it to your life. That means everything. First means you won't try to jump out of the fire. Because you know the refiner loves you. He sits over the crucible with tender care and love. He redeems you. He will have you. You are His. And He will come for you. So if you're suffering right now, and somebody in this room may be suffering in ways that we don't know, Peter wants you to understand it's the refiner's fire and he determined it. And he will determine whatever the secondary means of how it ends. And their secondary means, the primary is God's. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God deposit the guarding, the keeping of their souls to him. How will we escape the final judgment? We've been purified positionally. We're being purified by faith. Right? The practical righteousness is not necessary to pass final judgment. It's not a prerequisite. It's a necessary assurance. It's a necessary result. Because if you have faith, it produces works. Faith without works is dead. It doesn't exist. It's a devil's faith. James 2. If someone says they have faith and there's zero works, they're not saved, according to James, not me. Now, that's not my job to try to determine that. I'm just preaching what God says. <clears throat> so the fruit of salvation is a necessary result of being purified. So what should we do? Do well. <clears throat> Deposit the keeping of your soul. The body is important to God. And He'll raise it. But that's not the primary concern. It's your soul. The body sick is not the primary concern. God's concern. The body can get really sick. But if the soul gets sick, that's another thing. So deposit the keeping of your soul to Him in well-doing. So if the refiner's fire has come to you to train you in the affliction, keep doing well. But if the refiner's fire has come to you 
Because there's the guilt of sin and He's waking you up of it. Then repent and get back on the pathway of holiness. Because your assurance of enduring the final judgment is that you're on a pathway. That's your assurance. It's not prerequisite, it's your assurance. And then He says, unto a faithful Creator. Of all the things that Peter could have chosen about God, why a faithful Creator? Well, what does the catechism say about why God created you? Why did He create your soul? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Translated, the reason God created your soul is that you would glorify Him by enjoying Him both now and forever. The refiner is a faithful creator. His aim in all of your affliction and your trials is to bring you to greater joy in Him. Because that's His end. That's why, that's why He saves. And He's faithful. Oh, how faithful is He to you? How does He keep coming to you like a shepherd going after a wayward sheep? How does He keep coming after you? He's coming for your joy. Do you doubt Him? Do you charge Him? Or do you adore Him? So how do we end this message? We end it on the faithfulness of God. Verse 6 of Malachi 3. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob, you're not consumed, implied in what? In a consuming fire. Oh, it's not because of you. It's not because you have obeyed. It's not because you've done anything. If you have any obedience, that's the fruit of God's work in your heart. God is a faithful God. And because He will never change, you will not be consumed. But you'll stand perfect and complete before the Lamb of God who loves you and gave Himself for you. Beloved, where is the judgment of God? It's coming and gloriously you as a believer will escape it and enter into eternal life with Jesus Christ, your refiner. Let's pray.